You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Mache, aka Dribjed, who is primarily using Ansible to help manage a data center for a medical university. Mache, welcome to the show. Hello, Nick. Uh, this is Maciej Delmanowski. I'm living in Poland and I'm using, as Nick said, Ansible almost daily to manage a data center and other stuff. Awesome. So before you got this role here working at the data center, do you want to give us like a quick rundown of what you did before that or how you even got to this point? Sure. I started working with Linux uh, around 2001. Uh, professionally, I started working in a small company in Poznań around 2006. And after about a year, I moved to Gdańsk to uh, work in a medical university to manage, manage their data center. So like 14 years now. Nice. So for folks out there, you know, this episode is going to be a little bit different than most of the other episodes. Instead of focusing on like a single web application, we're going to focus on the infrastructure and deployment side of things as like the application being deployed. So that definitely should be interesting. And, you know, so Maciej, when it comes to setting all of this up, are you just the sole developer or sysadmin for this whole setup here? Uh, no, uh, I had a coworker uh, for most of the time, and recently we had new uh, administrators uh, to come and help with this stuff. The whole IT team in university is about fifteen or so people. Uh, I'm just managing the servers. There are other people who uh, develop applications, manage the installed services, and so on. Okay. So when it comes to all of these servers here and the workload on them, is this like a combination of things for the staff members of the university as well as students or just one or public internet is even accessible to? Or? Uh, yes. Uh, basically, a few uh, common things like the university's uh, website, the network around the campus, uh, various databases, uh, internal applications, and Moodle and mail services, a DROAM, uh, Wi-Fi network, and so on. Okay, so maybe just to set the stage here for this episode, do you want to give us maybe the TLDR or a quick rundown of like how many servers that you manage and like how many VMs do you run on them, etc.? Uh, at the moment, it will be about uh, 45. Yeah, I think 40 or so uh, hardware servers on different types and around 200 uh, virtual machines and containers. Nice. So all of those hardware servers, are they just sitting somewhere in the basement, in a rack? And... Yeah, 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 exactly. So do you get to go down there into the cage? Sometimes, not, not uh, all the time, of course. Uh, we have a separate office for this. And uh, over the years, of course, it was moved around. And when I came to the university, there was like five physical servers. So it just grew and grew over time. Interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of commonality between, I guess, being a sysadmin and a developer in that regard, because it's like, you know, you didn't just wake up, snap your fingers, and you started with like, you know, 40 servers with 200 VMs, right? It started with a couple. So maybe do you want to walk us through like what the process was like for you to go from, you know, the five servers with a dozen or whatever VMs to like how it got to its point current day? When I came to the university, uh, there were a few services which I had to uh, start managing, and I took them over one by one, and then more services were requested, like uh, we had to move to a bigger server for the mail uh, storage and so on. And we, of course, uh, bought new machines. Then I started, started looking into virtualization. Uh, actually, I started from OpenVZ as the container uh, solution. Uh, and after some time, when we when I got hang of this, uh, we added some more storage and uh, clustered machines, and I started looking into uh, virtual machines, specifically KVM. Uh, and after that, we basically used them for a few years, and then got into VW, sorry VMware. So we have a large number of solutions at our disposal. Okay. So when it came to ground zero, basically, you know, you just getting started there working there, 
Did you start day one using Ansible or did you configure things uh, by hand? No, when I came to the university, Ansible didn't exist. Uh, it was 2008, I think. Uh, yeah, I think at the time there was something like CF Engine, maybe Puppet, but it was basically non-existent. I mean, automation. Uh, I started automating stuff around 2013. Uh, after a major outage of our services, we had to restore mail services around mm, over two days. So after that, when I looked around and I saw that we have like 10 physical machines and about 30 or so uh, VMs and containers, I decided that that was enough for one person to manage by hand and I needed to automate things. Right. So. Before going the route of picking Ansible and you were doing it by hand, were you just going in there and just running commands directly or did you write some shell scripts to help you out? Yeah, basically going over SSH and running stuff by hand. Uh, I didn't do much scripts at the time. Mm -hmm. So by 2013, you know, I don't know exact dates, but I'm, I think like even Chef and stuff were, you know, it was around there. Did you do a comparison between like Puppet and Chef versus Ansible and then you picked one? Briefly. I tried Puppet, but I didn't really like it. I didn't like uh, Ruby. Well, actually, I didn't even know Ruby at the time. I knew Shell, I knew a bit of Python, a bit of Perl. So I looked into solutions based on those languages. So there was, I think, Ansible and SaltStack. Uh, Ansible actually was starting to grow uh, at the time. I think one version before I looked into it, they added support for roles. And the roles uh, could have defaults at the time. So this was something new. You, you can define variables that could be overridden through the inventory. So this was basically the, uh, the big push for me to use Ansible. Because one thing I wanted to do from the start is not to make my management solution internal only, but have it open source. Uh, oh, by the way, I use Debian. Uh, almost uh, all the time for my uh, workstations and servers. So this was also an uh, important thing for me to have something that could be maybe someday be in Debian. That's why I went with the open source uh, solution from the start. Yeah, so it's funny because this is one of the few episodes where I'm talking to like an actual friend who I've known for like about 10 years almost, right? So, but yeah, I first got introduced to your open source projects through that project. So that was really cool. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think you were one of the first people who came to the LSE channel I set up for the project. I'm not sure how you found it. Um, maybe you remember. Hmm? I think I was just Googling around for different Ansible roles and I kept seeing your repository come back. So I'm like, why am I doing all of this work when all of this great stuff exists? And I looked at the code and it was like, whoa, he's actually more knowledgeable than me. I think it's time to become friends and try to partner up and do some stuff. <laughs> nice. But going back to your setup here, I mean, for listeners out there who might not be super familiar with Ansible, like when you say terms like roles and inventory, do you want to give us like the one minute rundown of what those are and how they help you organize your the applications you run on the data center? Sure. So the main component in Ansible is uh, basically a task which can be saved either in a playbook uh, as a list of tasks to perform uh, against specific costs or a group of tasks and uh, additional uh, stuff around them can be saved in a role which then can be reused in reused in multiple playbooks. Uh, so we have roles and playbooks that basically define what Ansible should do. And there's also the inventory which tells Ansible where to do those things, where to execute those playbooks. Okay. So like in terms of roles, you might have something for installing Postgres or MySQL and Ruby and Python and, you know, 150 other potential services and things that you might want to install, right? Yes, exactly. Do you want to maybe give us an example of some of those role names that you've installed and like, you know, was it for an IT personnel or is it for students or things like that? I know there's a lot of them, so we can't get into all of them, but maybe you give us like the highlights. Uh, actually, I decided pretty early on that I will name my roles based on the Debian packages they uh, 
are supposed to manage. So, for example, I have a, a postfix role which man manages postfix uh, package and service, uh, and also a MariaDB role which manages uh, the MariaDB client side, and the MariaDB server which manages the MariaDB server side, and so on. There are, of course, few roles which are general, like querying that provides authentication information for GPG and aptkey. Those roles are usually... Uh, well, I try to be generic with the naming of the roles. There might be cases where roles can be renamed, uh, but I try to avoid that. So when it came to these roles here, you know, you didn't just start one day with like 150 of them sitting there ready to go. You know, they were developed over time, right, based on necessity of what you needed to build up for the data center. But when it came to open sourcing it, like what went through your mind to, you know, come up with like a good name for that? One thing I wanted to look into was some kind of reference to the Orson Scott card series since Ansible was basically something like that. So I went with Ansible-IUR, which was a fillout that defined a soul in the Orson Scott Card books. But after that, um, well, it was short-lived, let's say. Uh, I, I found that uh, it's not really an easy name to say, so I switched, it, uh, switched the name of the project to Genus. Uh, it was, of course, a backronym. Uh, Genus is not a server. Uh, and that was because the project was designed from the start to be used against the whole bunch of servers, so a cluster. So it's not really meant to manage only one server. And after I met you, actually, on the IRC, uh, well, I'm not sure why we just to change the name of the project, but we try a couple different ones and DevOps uh, was actually free at the time. So I registered the DNS name and we went, we went with this. Right. Yeah, no, I think you lucked out with that name because it's like, it is the perfect name, right? You're running Debian, uh, while well, you're running it against Debian servers and it's for like operation stuff, it's like the perfect match. Uh, actually, there's another meaning to this. Uh, Enrico Zini around 2014 defined uh, DevOps as using an established uh, operating system like Debian uh, for your base infrastructure. So, for example, when you uh, write code, write applications, and the programmers usually like to use the newest sets of libraries and uh, frameworks, but that uh, forces administrators to install them in some kind of sandbox and uh, constantly update them. So why not instead go the other way and base your application on an established stable platform, like a Debian stable? Uh, you have a specific set of libraries available. Debian provides its own security updates that are easy to use. And if you go with that, you can be sure that the platform is, will not fall under, uh, from under you, let's say. And he called this Paradigm DevOps. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I have to say as a developer also, I don't, I don't know if you remember this, but like, I'm pretty guilty of always wondering like, hey, how come we can't run Postgres like, you know, 7.0 back then because Debian Stable only had six or something like that. So I was always on you for like, can we get back port support and all sorts of interesting things like that? Because, yeah, I mean, looking back in those days, it's like having the stable stuff probably is better because it's like it's stable for a reason, right? Yes, and you have specific uh, windows of time to use it. You know that Ansible, uh, sorry, you know that Debian stable will be supported for two years and then will be extended support for, I don't know, more two years or so. And you have this uh, time window to work on your software. And you also know when the next uh, version of the operating system will be released so you can prepare for this. And you can easily and then switch from one version of the operating system to the uh, next version. Right. So when it came to Debian itself, though, did you begin working with that from day one? Or like, did you always know that you wanted to use it? Like, how did you end up there instead of going with maybe a, a different distro? I went with Debian in 2002. Uh, initially, I installed, well, I got uh, from... Uh, a friend of mine, a uh, CD with Mandrake 702. That was my first Linux in, uh, installation. 
But after about a year, I started looking at different distributions uh, like SUSE, Red Hat, uh, and then I tried Debian and I liked it. Uh, it I think it was about two weeks after Debian uh, Woody was released. Hmm. So pretty early on. Yeah, and here we are, like about 20 years later, and uh, Debian is still around, strong and kicking. Uh, DevOps is still around, uh, doing very well. Yeah, and I believe Debian will live long uh, into the future. I don't think Debian is ever going to go away. There is no risk for that. Yeah, for sure. Now, going back to your data center here, maybe do you want to walk us through, like, what goes through your mind to go and develop a new role that you need to run across a data center? Is it because, like, some IT staff came to you or project manager or something is like, hey, we need this functionality. Like, you know, what gets you going every day to develop new stuff? Most of the time, as you said, somebody comes to me and tells me we want this and this and this. For example, we want uh, Nextcloud, let's say. So first I usually look if there's, well, what's needed for Nextcloud to be set up. So let's say Nginx, a database like Mar MariaDB or PostgreSQL some kind of caching service like Redis, probably certificates because we want to use HTTPS for connections and so on. And then I check which one of these are in the project already. If there's something missing, I develop that one first because I don't want to have gaps in the technology stack, let's say. So if there's something missing, I focus on that first and when a role for a given service is uh, ready to go I uh, go to the next one and then build my application role and this allows me to uh, connect everything basically seamlessly without any uh, gaps or uh, friction let's say right yeah it's kind of interesting like you're you know, at times it's like you're building these lower level abstractions that you build upon, right? Like you have all these common roles that need to exist on a server, but then something like Nextcloud, it's like, well, you already have the MariaDB role. You just need to like use it in the next cloud role, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, the more a role is used, the more functionality it has and it's uh, better tested uh, that way. For example, we have Nginx role, which is pretty old at uh, at the present, it needs to be redesigned, but it's used in about 20 other uh, application stacks. So, well, it's double-edged sword, let's say. Uh, on one hand, the Nginx role is pretty well battle-tested right now, and it probably will work with your application if you want to use it. On the other hand, it's hard to redesign it because it will take some time and it's hard to do. Right. So do you know of any strategies that you thought of maybe so you can sort of maybe have two different Nginx roles, like the old one and the new one, and then you can like switch to the new one for only like one service instead of 20 of them? I think I tried this in the past, but it didn't really work out. What I'm trying to do is create a public API of sorts. Uh, so for example, uh, there's a firewall role which, uh, which uses Firm as the firewall manager. And it has a specific set of default variables which can be used to define the firewall rules. And all other roles which use firm uh, define those rules. So if I wanted to uh, modify firm to uh, work a different way, uh, I can do that in, in the firm role and just update other roles uh, as needed. And it should basically work out. Uh, one advantage we have about this is that all of the project is currently in the monorepo, so it's easy to synchronize changes across multiple roles at the time, at, at, what, at once. Yeah, I think that's an interesting segue because, yeah, I mean, for a time, didn't it go from monorepo to every single role was in its own repo, and now we're back to monorepo because, you know, Ansible is a little bit more well-suited towards that. Do you want to go like through that journey of how that even came? Uh, sure. Uh, when I started working on the project, uh, it actually was a monorepo. Uh, all roles were in the same uh, Git repository. Uh, but then when Ansible Galaxy uh, became uh, more mainstream, well, I wanted to use that to, I guess, both promote DevOps. I think it was, yeah, it was DevOps at the time already. 
So I wanted to promote I wanted to promote DevOps on Galaxy and also give you uh, people access to the roles themselves without the need to use the whole project. That why I would have a more diverse user base and um, people could uh, uh, tell me what issues they found and maybe bring some solutions we needed. And one obstacle to that was uh, that Galaxy required that each separate role was in its own repository. Mm. So I basically bit the bullet and split the whole project into about 60 uh, different repositories. Most of them were Ansible roles and there were a few separate repositories for the playbooks, uh, documentation and so on. It worked for about two years and then the number of roles skyrocketed from 60 to 120 and that proved to be too much for me uh, to manage. So I decided to roll everything back into the one monorepo. Well, I did it over a few weeks and we are back into one repository now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, back when you split things up to be individual roles, I believe that is how I got involved with the project because it was like, oh, you already have a Postgres role and a Redis one and other ones as well. Yeah. Although come to think of it, actually, I think the Redis one I may have created that one. Maybe it didn't exist at the time. Uh, actually, yes. You wanted to uh, have a role which deployed Redis applications, I believe. Uh, one of the applications at the time I wanted to have was GitLab, actually. It was uh, both to provide a Git-like service uh, to the local uh, data center and to provide a testing uh, solution for roles like Nginx, uh, PostgreSQL, uh, Ruby, and so on. So we have basically a proof of concept that those roles work as, as expected. Right. Yeah, I remember many nights trying very hard to get the Redis Sentinel stuff to work for clustering. We had some crazy code to get that to work. <laughs> uh, yeah, Redis is actually uh, a bit of an exception because it modifies its own configuration files at runtime. So we had to work very hard around this and find a way for Ansible to incorporate the changes uh, from Redis so they not are not get lo getting lost when the roles are applied on the host. Right. So I think maybe we can rewind a little bit and talk about that process of going from monorepo to multiple roles back to monorepo and just growing the project. You know, you mentioned going from 60 roles to like about 120. That's a big jump. Like, did you end up writing your own tools or do anything to help you manage all of that YAML files and Python and whatever else you had to write? So when I think about the time, uh, yeah, I, there was a there were a few tools. Uh, I think you wrote actually two tools for me. One was ANSI Genome that uh, would provide uh, information about lots of uh, Ansible roles in Git repositories and manage their readme files. And there was also a Rollas spec. It was a tool designed to implement continuous integration for multiple Ansible roles in separate Git repositories. So it was very handy to have. We had one uh, Git repository with just the tests. Uh, and when there were changes in roles, uh, Travis CI would clone the test repository and run the tests for specific role from there. Yeah, it's always interesting how this stuff works out, right? It's like you just hack away on a project and you run into limitations and then you develop your own tools or whatever to fix those problems for current day. But now it's like rewind to like real current day, you know, and, and now you have a different set of tools that I would imagine you have that help you out. Do you want to go over like what the current solution is to kind of help manage all that stuff? Uh, sure. Since uh, at the moment we have a monorepo, there are a few internal uh, scripts that help manage it. For example, there is a script that use uh, that is used by Sphinx uh, documentation generator to import role defaults and convert them from YAML files to uh, restructured, restructured text documents. And then they are included in the documentation. Uh, so we have up-to-date documentation without the need to have uh, two files for each variable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's always fun to keep your documentation in sync with your code. Uh, especially, well, we didn't really get into this yet, but I don't know if you're going to know off the top of your head, but like, 
How many lines of YAML do you think you've written over the years? Like, what does current DevOps have? Uh, at the moment, YAML, well, the lines of code, we, I think about 67,000 just YAML in the whole repository. And uh, documentation, uh, it's about 40,000 lines of code. Yeah, that's uh, an unbelievable amount because it's like, for folks out there who haven't really used Ansible much, like you can get a pretty decent amount done without that much code. So yeah, it's cool to see that you've built this up to what it is currently. But then you also, isn't there like a whole bunch of shell scripts and Python scripts as well? Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, at least each role has at least one script, usually a Python script, which manages the uh, Ansible facts on the host. And when you count, well, about 40 Python scripts right now in the repository, about 80 shell scripts of different uh, different types. And just to rewind, like, you know, when it comes to working at the university, you've been working on DevOps pretty much full time since then, or did you take some breaks? No, uh, it's about eight years now. I usually uh, don't work too much during uh, holidays or uh, summer vacation. I just uh, take the time to relax and unwind. But apart from that, I usually work on DevOps full time as long as I don't have anything else to work uh, on. For example, there might be uh, some services to deploy or service to set up and so on. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to setting up like that new service or something like that, you would be doing that with DevOps straight up, right? Like, wouldn't you be making an Ansible role for that one or no? Uh, yes, one of the roles I had, I wanted to create for the project was basically the preceding role. Uh, Debian installer has a preceding functionality, which lets you define the answers to the questions during installation. You can provide them over HTTP or through a file. And I designed a preced, yeah, preceding ro role, uh, which sets up the uh, services for the Debian installer and I can define which answers the answers the uh, installer gets. At the moment, installation of virtual machine uh, from start to finish takes about 15 minutes depending on the uh, underlying uh, infrastructure, but I don't have to answer any question about that. I just uh, start the installation, pick the name for the machine and, I don't know, go make myself a cup of coffee. And when I uh, get back, I get a fully working virtual machine with basic Debian installation. And after that, it's set up. I can just uh, add this machine to the Ansible inventory I manage and run DevOps uh, against it with the specific roles and playbooks I want. Hmm. So when it comes to managing that inventory of, you know, 200 or so different VMs that you have running there, do you just use the default inventory configuration that comes in Ansible, or do you use the Redis-backed one or something else? I use the, well, I guess it's not default, but it's a classical ini-style inventory. I keep this inventory in a Git repository. This repository is actually managed by a few of the DevOps scripts that were written to manage so-called project directories. Because with DevOps, one of the features is, for example, password management. I don't really like passwords that much. I want my passwords to be generated randomly. I don't want to think about each and every password to be set. And there are a few of those usually. For example, a root password, a database server password, application password, and so on. So instead, uh, DevOps roles usually use the password lockup plugin uh, from Ansible to generate passwords. Uh, those are stored in a specific uh, path in the project directory, and that way they can be uh, they can be reused uh, again to provide idem potency. So to manage that, uh, the DevOps scripts provides a mecha mechanism to encrypt those uh, directories. So they can be, well, I guess, shared between uh, other team members through Git without any issues. Nice. Now, when it came to like that type of pattern where, you know, you're developing a setup to have locally generated passwords, like how did you stumble upon that exact strategy? Like from ground zero, you just came up with that? Like, like what caused you to get there? Well, when I started, uh, sorry, uh, when 
I came up with the need to create a password for the first time. I knew that the project uh, was meant to be open source, so I couldn't include uh, some, I don't know, sample passwords in it because they would be... People don't change the passwords. I don't, I don't believe they do uh, so that often. And uh, one of the design goals of DevOps is to be used in production right away. So I wanted to have a way to generate passwords randomly so that they could be defined, for example, per host. It was pretty easy because Ansible already had the password local plugin available. So I just used that. Nice. So earlier you talked a little bit about the idea of secrets and passwords and Git repos and you know those secrets aren't going to be commit to version control. Other than the open source project existing on GitHub, do you run uh, a self-hosted version of GitLab internally still uh, on your actual cluster of servers or no? Uh, yes, we actually have two instances right now. One are pretty old uh, and the other, well, still uh, old, but a bit newer than the first. And they are used sensibly internally. Okay, and these are all for what, private repos? You don't even want to exist on GitHub even as private repos? Yes, yes. Th those are for internal applications of the university. Uh, we don't feel the need to publish them as open source. Okay. Now, speaking of university and medical and all the privacy around that, do you did you have to do anything to deal with like HIPAA compliance laws or no? Uh, no, uh, because I don't do the hospital portion of the infrastructure. This is a separate entity. Okay. And then in terms of like students that might be using some services that you've set up for them, uh, you mentioned you do use Postfix to handle emails. Do you do anything fancy or uh, anything in general just to like help filter out bad things that might people, you know, people might be sending or violating some university TOS or whatever? Uh, yeah, we have some anti-spam and anti-virus uh, services uh, behind Postfix and we use a separate lists of uh, banned IP addresses or uh, senders. Of course, on the other hand, well, on the other end of the infrastructure, we use at the moment uh, Roundcube. And if we provide a IMAP and POP3 services so that students can connect through their own uh, clients they choose. Right. Probably not going to be using Roundcube unless you're pretty technical, I guess, right? Most people are just going to be on their phones or whatever. Uh, Hard to say. I think Roundcube is used pretty extensively because uh, it's the easiest one. You just uh, enter a URL in the web browser and you just got yourself a my client. There is no need to set up uh, Thunderbeard or uh, find out what passwords you are using and so on. In those times, web clients are pretty common, especially since there are other uh, organizations that provide webmail like Gmail, Outlook and other services. Right. So when it comes to students in general, do you ever find yourself getting direct requests from a student? Like, hey, by the way, you know, I have to, well, I would like to run this thing or no? Mm, no, we manage the, uh, let's say, global infrastructure for the university. Uh, we don't provide specific uh, services for specific people unless uh, they go to our uh, systems people and ask about them. Right. So like maybe an example of that would be, I don't know, students go to a professor, professor says, hey, we would like to have this running. And then it goes to the IT team and then it goes to you, like something like that or? Uh, yeah, kind of. But it's not usually that specific. Uh, we usually define services for the whole university, not just a group of people. So mail services, uh, web uh, uh, CMS system for the university web page and so on. Mm -hmm. So for uh, the publicly accessible part of the infrastructure you manage, do you use any like external SaaS tools or any tools in general or services to help you out, like Let's Encrypt or anything? Some of them. Let's Encrypt is used on specific uh, servers to provide uh, certificates. Other than that, no, we usually use our own internal services. Okay. and. This is going to be a weird question to answer, I guess, because it's going to depend on what they request to do. But like, you know, let's say someone is like, hey, by the way, can you go and make this service? You know, you get that like official word from the university. Like, what is a turnaround time usually like for something like that? And like, not just much a turnaround time, but like, what is your process? You know, like, how do you start a new role or new functionality? 
uh, I usually start from scratch. Uh, basically, when I uh, need to set up an application, so I create uh, specific uh, directories that are used in a role. So default tasks, templates, and so on. And I go to the development container, let's say. Uh, I usually use LXC containers these days to develop something. So I go to the container and install the uh, application package, if it's available in Debian, of course, and see what it does. Uh, I see what installs, if there are any Conf uh, configuration files that are managed by Debian. Uh, what are those files? How the service is managed? Managed, uh, and then I try to implement the whole process in Ansible. So in separate tasks like install this package, divert those configuration files, generate specific configuration files using a template, and so on. Uh, then I look to see what other services might need to be configured for the application. For example, if does it does it use a database? If so, on which database? Then I can use existing roles to manage MariaDB or PostgreSQL users and client uh, and databases for the application. If the application has uh, TCP ports, for example, if it uses connections over the network, I usually defer to my uh, firewall role and so on. So I try from the start to connect the application to other roles available in the project. Right. So like over time, I guess it becomes easier to introduce new stuff because it's like you've already got the base built up. Yes, exactly. That's the whole idea. Right. Now, before you mentioned you are using LXC containers for just a local dev environment, do you want to maybe walk us through what it's like to test this stuff before you roll it out to production? Sure. When I install and create a role for a given application, I usually uh, destroy the container which was used to install it and prepare the role and I recreate it from scratch. Uh, and I then try to find any issues with the role. Maybe something was forgotten or maybe it needs some other packages to function properly. And I usually run this free or even 10 times uh, to make sure the role is correct. And when it's, uh, it works fine, I then start to write documentation for the role. That's of course very important because without documentation, it's hard to use uh, Ansible role properly. This is usually the longest time uh, because, well, writing documentation is boring, but let's say it, right? <laughs> So it takes me a while usually, and then I uh, finish by creating a test for it and uh, commit it to the repository. Yeah, isn't that always fun? It's like you develop the role, okay, you slam it out in like six hours, but then it's like, oh, but then there's like 15 hours of documentation. Uh, yeah, kind of. Um, now, as for LXCs, for listeners out there, do you want to give us a rundown of what they are, you know, how they might differ from a VM or even like Docker containers? LXC are so-called system containers. So instead of having, uh, like in Docker, a container designed for a specific application and only that application is running inside this container, you have a fully fledged, for example, Debian distribution installed inside of the container. It doesn't have its own kernel, of course, because it uses the host's kernel. So there's no grab and other such infrastructure, but the rest of the system is basically the same. You have access to systemd inside of the, of the container, so you can run multiple services, restart them, and prepare uh, uh, unit files for the real systemd in production. Uh, it's pretty handy. Um, of course, you cannot use it for everything. For example, if you want to mess with the kernel or uh, manage in network interfaces or do low-level stuff, you basically need either a virtual machine or physical hardware to uh, test things inside. Right. But for like 95% of cases where you're not touching those things for a role, then the LXC, it's beneficial. Why? Because it, it's faster than spinning up a full VM? I would say, yeah, it's really faster. uses less resources. You can put, uh, I think, about five times more uh, containers on a host in, than virtual machines. Nice. 
So speaking of hosts and servers, do you want to maybe give us a rundown of those 40 servers that you have? Like how much memory, CPU, and disk space you have in total? Because I understand it's going to be like almost impossible to factor it out for each individual one. I don't really have that information right now. And I don't think it's really uh, relevant to the uh, DevOps itself. So it's basically dependent on the application. If your application needs more RAM, we give it more RAM. If it needs more CPU, we give it more CPU. Okay. And like if your servers are starting to get filled up and there's no more resources available, do you just make a call to someone to be like, hey, by the way, we need another server? Uh, yeah, something like that. Probably not that informal, but some process. <laughs> of course. So earlier, you kind of touched base on how you run these roles locally in LXCs or, you know, I guess maybe a VM if you need to use like special functionality that's not available in the LXC. Do you want to go through the process of getting to the point where all of your tests pass and you're happy with that role? And now it's like time to really, really for real deploy it onto the production servers. It's not that different from the development environment. And that's, of course, intentional because when you have the same set of playbooks and roles in your development environment and your production environment, there's no need to worry about if your roles work in production or not, because you know they work. They work just fine in development environment. Also, if you want to create a new development environment based on your production environment, so go in the other direction, you also have the same set of playbooks and roles. You can just do that. Just change the domain and uh, you can have your own production environment recreated in separate uh, set of uh, subnets and IP addresses and just make that a new development environment. Nice. So for local development there, you know, you mentioned domain names then. Do you have a full DNS server running locally so you can do something like, you know, example.local or .home or, you know, some whatever local TL, uh, local domain name? In development, I usually use DNS mask and it's nicely integrated with LXC. So when I create a container, let's say Gamma, the LXC service automatically uses the local DNS mask service to create a records for Gamma container. And I can SSH to it through its uh, domain name. I don't actually use IP addresses anymore. Nice. And by the way, just on the topic of like, you know, rolling things out to production and stuff like that, a new service were to be deployed and you don't happen to have it to be load balanced and there might be some downtime for that service. Is that something you give fair warning to? Like you email someone to be like, hey, we're going to be bringing down the service for the next two hours or something? Uh, usually if it's already used, then sure, we try to give our users a warning that the service will be down for a specific set of time. Do you usually have like... Uh, a predefined safe time of when, you know, when the server is usually not too busy, like during the nighttime or maybe like a Sunday or whatever? Uh, no, those services are meant to be working 24-7. Uh, so there is no uh, set downtimes. Okay. Now, speaking of downtime or hopefully no downtime, do you want to talk a little bit about how you plan for disasters or unexpected events? Like how do you keep the files that are on your servers backed up? As for the disaster recovery planning, that was actually one of the key elements that pushed me into developing this whole project. Uh, because now that I have the uh, almost everything in the playbooks and roles, if something happens to the uh, data center, I can just rerun the playbooks somewhere else and set up uh, the whole infrastructure from scratch in about, I don't know, 30 minutes because all the settings are in the project directory. They are safely stored on my laptop and I can just go to a different data center, set it up the same as the one before and it will work. And all it needs, all it needs of course, is the data itself. So databases, um, files and so on. And those are usually backed up either by Veeam or a snapshot or some other service. Okay. Yeah, and I think that's really basically uh, one of the big wins, right, of using something like Ansible or configuration management, it's like all the code is sitting there. You just need to rerun it. It's not so much you have to log into the server and run, you know, 27,000 commands in a specific order. Well, that's actually what uh, the project is. The common playbook used on all ser uh, servers 
uh, that are managed by DevOps has, I don't know, like 600 tasks to run through 40 different roles. So it's pretty big. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, speaking of just like, you know, minimizing downtime and handling backups and keeping things automated and nice, do you have anything set up for you in terms of like logging and metrics and alarms? Like, do you get notified if stuff goes down? Like, how does that all come together? Uh, well, we have Isinga. Of course, it's all in DevOps, right? So we have Isinga. Uh, we can set up monits uh, to manage some services. There's LibreNMS to manage networking because it can easily uh, connect to the switches and gather data to SNMP from them. Uh, I would like to have a few more services like, like that in the project, of course. Uh, one uh, particular service I'm looking into uh, adding is Moonin. So it's a bit older uh, monitoring solution. And there is, of course, other roles already present in pro uh, in pull requests of DevOps project like Grafana, uh, Prometheus. Uh, well, they need some time to be reviewed and integrated with the rest of the project. Uh, that's also one thing I need to work on since, well, I'm pretty much the sole maintainer of the project. Of course, there are lots of people that uh, over the years committed code, provided uh, improvements and suggestions. And well, if I can, I would like to really thank all of them right here and now for their help. And I hope they will help even more in the future. But yeah, ultimately, there's I guess there needs to be somebody which will decide which code enters the uh, repository and which doesn't. I guess that all fell onto my hands. Mm. So what is that like, by the way, in your day-to-day -day kind of like, you need to balance, you know, meeting uh, university requirements, like whatever they ask you to do, developing out DevOps itself, and then also like managing the project as an open source project that's fairly big and popular, you know, like there are people, you know, opening issues and PRs. Well, I wouldn't say it's popular. And well, I guess I'm able to manage it right now. Uh, so. Of course, Monday to Friday, I work at the university uh, and in my free time, I uh, manage different DevOps uh, stuff like uh, the mailing list, IRC channels. For example, recently we had to move the IRC channel to the new network libera.chat. Uh, so that took uh, a bit and I was able to uh, connect the matrix room to the IRC channel. Let's say that Usually, day to day, there's nothing much to manage in the project itself, like from the managerial side. Of course, there are currently lots of pull requests and I need to find some time to review them and accept them or project them depending on what they are. So that's that is still something I need to work on. Uh, well, honestly, I'm I've learned all this stuff via DevOps. So uh, I learn as I go. Right. I think that's a very good way to put it too. And I don't know about you, but like for me, I really like that process, right? It's like you go when you need to install a new service that you don't really know how it works. So you go and research it, you know, install it, like you say, look at its configs, understand it, and then automate it. Like that process to me is really fun. Do you feel the same way? Well, I would imagine, yeah, because here we are like, you know, eight years later, probably like doing that stuff. Well, uh, as I said, I started with Linux uh, around 2001, but with computers themselves, I started, well, my interest in them started around uh, 1996. Almost immediately, I knew that what I liked about computers is actually uh, configuring them, setting them up and managing them. I didn't really like uh, to use them. For example, writing Word documents or the Excel spreadsheets. Uh, Sure, I can do that, but it's not really interesting. But getting into the operating system internals and setting everything up so it works as I want to, or even uh, doing this for other people and uh, setting computers uh, for them, that's really what I like about all this. So maybe now we can talk a little bit about some of your best tips and lessons learned from just building this up over time. We'd be really curious to hear your thoughts on that. Hmm, lessons from building DevOps. Definitely, if you want to uh, create 
uh, sort of infrastructure based on Ansible, a good tip is to have specific role for specific uh, services. Don't duplicate roles. As you said uh, uh, previously about having different sets of Engine, Nginx roles for different applications, That's, that doesn't really uh, scale well. You should have just one role for one specific service and just find a way to um, connect different roles together. This is, I think, a good recipe for success. Okay. Now, on the topic of like the opposite of success, do you recall anything maybe over the years that not necessarily you did wrong or whatever, but like, you know, some mistake that you made that you corrected along the way? Well, the repository speed was, in hindsight, a pretty bad idea. Uh, some of the history of the project was either lost or uh, is basically broken and not continuous. So it's hard to uh, look uh, in the past, for example. There is a separate branch in the repository that contains the old comics from uh, the earliest days of uh, the project, but it's completely separate from the main branch and it cannot be connected together. So I think that was the biggest mistake uh, uh, in, in the project overall. Well, I would say eight years running, if that's the only real big mistake, uh, doing pretty well, I would say. Yeah, thank you. No problem. So, Maciej, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to talk with you and about the project. I hope we'll see each other uh, next time. Yeah, anytime. Now, before we wrap this up, though, do you want to share any links to any sites that you have, GitHub, Twitter profile, anything like that? Uh, sure. DevOps has its own website uh, called devops.org. You can find there usually the documentation of the project, uh, all the roles and playbooks and uh, the stuff around them. There's also the project's repository on GitHub. So it will be github.com slash devops slash devops. Uh, this is the main repository. There is also a few other repositories. And there's the mailing list, uh, the IRC channel, the matrix room. Uh, all of those can be found in the documentation uh, on the community page. So if you want to check it out, uh, go ahead. It would be nice to uh, get some feedback from uh, users. For example, you can use it on your own infrastructure. You can use it in the cloud. You can use it on Raspberry Pis. And if you find any issues with the project or you have any questions, come on over to the IRC uh, or send an email to the mailing list. Uh, I'm sure that I and other uh, users of the project will be happy to respond. Awesome. And yeah, I mean, that's how I got introduced to the project, right? Like I was running DevOps against one single server on DigitalOcean. It wasn't like a massive data center in, you know, a medical university, right? Like it totally worked for running my uh, services on one server. Yeah, of course. The project is designed in the intentionally so that it can scale from one uh, container even to entire data center or cluster of servers. Cool. So on that note, I'll drop all those links into the show notes. And to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running in Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.